When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is the grifter model, which is what Marxism and CRT use. And then there is the deconstructive model, which is what queer theory and all of these subsidiaries like fat and ability studies and so on use. Marxists and critical race theorists are grifters. They want to seize the means of production. They want to confuse what's going on so that they can take over the means of production. Queer theorists are deconstructionists. They want to obliterate anybody being able to hold the means of production so that they can reign as navigators of the confusion. These are completely different things. And the way that you can actually see that most clearly is by looking at critical race theory specifically. Critical race theory could be constituted as it is, that race is socially imposed and reified by people of social dominance. And as such, we have to deal with the fact that racial identity is therefore concrete or made concrete. It's actual and inescapable. So you can't change your race. You cannot possibly become post-racial. That would be against the rules. But there's a reason for that is that you can't seize the means of racial production. In other words, affirmative action, reparations, and so on, unless that has intrinsic immutable meaning. In the real world. However, you could say that the real basis of CRT is or should be that um, the black is the intrinsic abnormal other to white. And therefore, you could develop a queer theory of race. But the point then would be to deconstruct racial boundaries and transracialism would be the thing that proliferates to completely obliterate any concept of racial boundaries. CRT is kind of this hangover from the modern era of seizing the means of production, whereas queer theory is this postmodern destroy the means of production approach. And, and Crenshaw is very, very clear at the end of mapping the margins that this shall not be. There will be no postmodernism used this way. Okay. In CRT, we're race is imposed. You're not taking it away from us. This is our grift. The imposition of race is the basis for our claims about affirmative action. If race is not being unjustly imposed, we have no basis for a material grift that we're trying to run. So CRT ultimately is a grifter theory and a queer theory of race, especially as more postmodernism gets embraced, will actually eventually consume it. So how am I doing? I'm in a great mood lately. I'll tell you. You I'm sound like it. You're just radiating joy and frivolity. Some, Tiffany asked me if I would come on a space. She's like, you seem peppy. Will you come on a space with me tonight? And I was like, peppy is not the word. And I will be mean to people. Oh, so what? what's grinding your gears? Um, Virtually everything. I've hit like a wall of frustration with virtually every aspect of this entire uh, culture war. Left, right, and center. Oh yeah, pissed at all of them. Yeah. Pissed off at every freaking one of them. Because they don't. Why see? is that? Because they're retard[s]. Well, they is it that they don't understand? Is that they refuse to understand? It's some that don't understand. It's some that refuse to understand, and it's largely people who know better. Hmm. They're trying to seize the opportunity to advance their own agendas and profit. Oh yeah. I don't think you can ever divorce people's self-interest, but you can incentivize it, right? That's that's the system to build is but, where you channel it. Yeah, that's, 
that's the system that they've they've created. It's all incentives, and there's a point in time where they started dumping a lot of money into it, and certain laws got changed. So that's why it kind of happened all at once and everywhere. And then um, social media does facilitate it. I mean, that's not that's not a controversial claim. I think that woke would not be possible to have spread even through academia the way that it did um, without the social media aspect. But on the other hand, the only place that you can possibly see that it came from is uh, academia. Correct. That's that's exactly the point, is that the view was synthesized in the academic world. And, and then, then uploaded, basically. Yeah. Everything else is just the system in which it knocks around in. And people are are confusing the... Uh, Medium and the this? message. Yeah, yeah. They're con- they're confusing the the oil pipelines for the f- refinery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so James, I found something for you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I hope it's a murder weapon. Oh, I hope it's <laughs> feet picks. Why not both? I have a murder weapon actually. Um, oh, good. Go. Always got to show up with <laughs> your defense. My new personal. knife. Oh yeah, somebody made that for you. Yeah, I met him, and and he's in in Charlotte, North Carolina. I met him, and he is a metal worker, and thought it was cool that he saw that I was doing a little bit. And then he started making this knife, and he texted me and said, "Do you want me to make you a knife?" And I was like, "Yeah." And so he did. It was pretty badass. You could most definitely, uh, you know, carve meat with it. It's probably sharp enough. Ooh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's got the new discourses thing on it. Oh, wow, you can cool. do like the whole Paul Atreides thing. Did you come back with your feet picks? Murder weapon feet picks. This is from our favorite guy. I have a lot of favorite guys right now. Yeah. Henry Giroux. Oh, yeah. He is one of my favorite guys. In his later work, particularly with his work with Donald Malcedo, and in his numerous interviews, and in his talking books with authors such as Ira Shore, Antonio Fondes, and Miles Horton, Frieri undertakes a form of social criticism and cultural politics that pushes against those boundaries that invoke the discourse of a unified humanist subject, universal historical agents, and enlightenment rationality. Refusing the privilege of home as a border intellectual situated in the shifting and ever-changing universe of struggle, Frieri invokes and constructs elements of social criticism that shares an affinity with emancipatory strands of postmodern discourse. That is, mm. in his refusal of a transcendent ethics, epistemological foundationalism, and political teleology, he further develops a provisional ethical and political discourse subject to the play of history, culture, and power. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hmm. But there's no connection between postmodernism and Marxism. They're different things and have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Well, isn't postmodernism just a critique of power? It's not necessarily a reduction of everything to power. It can still be like a positive or useful critique, right? You guys have both said that, you know, Foucault and Derrida and stuff, they're actually very useful to understand. They are, um, they are interesting to understand. I think that the postmodernists are decent diagnosticians. Are we actually doing this thing? Because I've been like dicking around while we weren't started. Let's just stick around. Let's start. No, all right. So I'll stop checking my text messages and waiting for everybody to be organized then. Three um, dicks. Can I, 
Should I reread that passage? As I no, I'm going to cut off? it in. Let's just, it's already kicking. We're not going to stream. I'll just edit it in. All right. So, yeah, I never know if we've actually started when I come on here and I always make an ass of myself. Um, I think you kind of like that. Uh, yeah. So I'll stop checking my text messages and playing with my knives and things. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the postmodern philosophy, I think, is a very good diagnostic for what's going on in our society uh, because they weaponized postmodern philosophy in order to build the society we have right now. So, um, yeah, I think that the postmodern has actually had, especially Baudrillard, had an insight into what the um, the media world, uh, th this kind of media-saturated world, this propaganda-saturated world that we live in, is uh, what it's like. But I disagree with the way that they took the analysis. This is often the case. I mean, the, the general maxim I think we all need to keep in mind is that communism marries a truth and a lie. And it always does that. Or if you don't want to call it communism, that's fine. And you don't have to call it Marxism. It's actually, in fact, the dialectic that marries a truth to a lie every single time. So all, all dialectical thought, whether it's hermetic religious thought, whether it's uh, Hegelian, whether it's Kantian, whether it's Platonic, whether it's uh, Marxist, whether it's woke, all it's doing is taking a little bit of the is and mixing in a little bit of the is not and presenting a, a, a case that's often pretty penetrating in terms of what it's identifying and diagnosing because these people are hypersensitive to not getting their way and throw a gigantic fit about everything that doesn't give them their way. And then it mixes in, you know, kind of some bullshit about how we're supposed to interpret that. And in particular, that capitalism or white people or something is the ultimate problem that's preventing everybody from getting their way. So it gives this very reductive, idiotic interpretation of what's going on. But they tend to be pretty sensitive as far as di diagnosticians go. Um, they are sensitive to the, you know, Foucault is very sensitive to the way that power uh actually works through social structures. Um, Derrida was very sensitive to the way that meaning is constructed and is in some ways fluid through language. Baudrillard was very sensitive to the to the realm of images being able to be something that you confuse for reality. Uh, but then their, their Lantard was extremely, I think, sensitive to the idea that consensus can lead people into um, kind of dead ends or tyrannies, but also to the idea that we think in stories. Uh, so these postmodern philosophers had a lot to say that's not completely bunk, but what they did with it was just try to take apart Western civilization. They tried to take apart anything like especially universal human experience, and they tried to destroy anything like rigor and replace it with sincerity. It was, it's a very um, romantic project in that regard. Yeah. Wait, that's odd that they'd pit sincerity against rigor or try to replace sincerity with rigor why sincerity? yeah because rigorous methods are actually just an expression of the people who get to define what what counts as rigorous so it's a, it's an exercise of power to define rigor to say that this method is more valid than that method is is intrinsically an exercise of power in postmodern philosophy so therefore um we have to get to something different and so where they locate that being ultimately romantics uh where they locate that is in in sincerity, in other words, what they call lived experience. Lived experience becomes the arbiter of validity. So we're now shifted away from truth, and we've shifted into something they call validity, what is and is not valid. 
And what they claim is, in fact, that it's a myth that there's any such objective standpoint where you would have universally valid or universally true or objectively true statements. So everything is a is a function of the contingent culture in which it's embedded. In other words, this is what I said. I put it on Twitter. I sent it to Wokel the other day. I figured you might get a kick out of it. Um, I was just going to text it to Wokel, but I was locked down my F and DMs on stupid Twitter again. So uh, because I sent too many DMs in one day, like. God, I hate Twitter now. Uh, so I was going to send it there. So I, I just tweeted it instead and then texted Vocal the tweet instead of texting him the, the content of the tweet. But what I said is that, you know, what Hegel was talking about um, kind of is the kind of modern systematic German idealist architect of the romantic project into a systematic philosophy embedded within a her heretical Christian model. What he was talking about is trying to develop the Weltgeist. So the Weltgeist develops through conflict internal to the different um, areas within it that are that are, are in contradiction to one another, which we might identify as cultural differences or, or Volksgeists, uh, Geistes, I guess, is I don't know how to say things in German, but multiple folk spirits. And so the culture of, of a folk, of an ethnic group. And what I've argued is that what postmodernism says in essence is that there is no world spirit. There is no Weltgeist. There are only competing Volksgeists. And anything that you might mistake for a emerging Weltgeist, a world spirit of humanity is in fact just a myth that humans are, are are articulating for themselves to feel like there's unity where there's not. There's only competing folks. There's only ethnic enclaves in some regard. And I don't mean ethnic in terms of race or even geographic location. Uh, it so can just be philosophical escapes. adherence, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So there are there are different folks, folksgeistes and, and, and no overarching universal humanity. And I think that postmodernism can basically be boiled down to that. As far as having a relationship to Marxism, um, just like I've outlined, say, at the EU Parliament, uh, where I said that we should think of Marxism as a genus, where there's some special form of property that certain people have excluded, have exclusively granted to themselves, and they exclude other people from them, and thus create a stratified society, so that the lower class has to be awakened into its role as a historical agent that can seize the means of production of that form of special property. Marx did it in economics, CRT does it with race and whiteness as property, queer theory does it with normalcy, Paulo Freire comes along and does it with who gets to be considered knowledgeable or a knower or what constitutes knowledge, and the postmodernists did it with who gets to set the terms of meaning-making itself, and their answer was wholly negative. Nobody gets to because everybody's just a folk. Everybody's yeah. just a separate folk apart from everybody else. Yeah. Well, James, isn't that ex kind of very, very close to what you've said in very explicit terms, very beautifully rousing terms where nobody gets to be God in the liberal United States? Nobody gets to be God. There's no one world spirit. There's no central Volk. In a well, way, I didn't say that there's really... no. Well, I don't think there's a world spirit, but uh, nobody gets to be God is I think the basis for the U.S. And this is, I think, why liberalism is so easily attached or attacked by the parasite of postmodern thinking is that it looks similar. Uh, but liberalism, or at least American liberalism, begins with the statement of self-evident truths, which are therefore absolutely universal. We take these truths to be self-evident uh, that, that uh, you know, what is it? That we are endowed by our creator with certain and inalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is an extension of property. 
So what the liberal experiment is saying is that there actually are fundamentally self-evident truths that are therefore true for all people in all places and all times everywhere. And that completely negates the idea that truth is merely a function of power that rests within various folk uh, that's at the heart of the postmodern project. Um, the postmodernists, in fact, are not saying at all that nobody's God. They're actually kind of saying everybody's God, uh, which is a completely opposite okay. yeah. statement to that. And if you were to, I mean, that's the hermetic aspect. The first step in the hermetic transformational profit process is to recognize that you, in fact, are in the position of the third person of the of the Godhead, the, the one that in, infests the material world. And when you come to realize that you are already the third person of the Godhead, then it's your job to start shedding the layers of illusion that lead you to readopt a Christ consciousness and enter into the your birthright as the second person of the Godhead, which allows you to start to do the true self-begetting development that will lead you to merge back with the first person of the Godhead in perfect total unity at the end of time. And the postmodern project is actually a negative dialectical process in that exact vein that is not at all what the liberal project, classical liberal project is based on. The classical, classical liberal project starts with whatever that is, you're not that. Whether the Hermetic approach, whether the Christian approach or the Judaic approach, whatever the real understanding of theology is, it should begin with you're a human and you're not that. You do not start out as the third person of the Godhead. You are at best something made in the image of the Godhead that can be inspired by the third person of the Godhead. Uh, that can aspire as a model to the second person, but not to create yourself or become that or any of this stuff. So it's kind of exactly the opposite. Mm. It's a perversion of, it's a very sophisticated perversion of the the liberal uh, ethos. And that's why I use this genus species thing. I know that half of my, three quarters of my audience that wants to hear this doesn't want to hear about evolution. But the fact of the matter is that these ideologies evolve. And they had no significant inroads into Western civilization whatsoever until things that matched the Western liberal ethos became the model by which it perpetuated itself. It can only insinuate itself into a society that's similar to itself. Um, in other words, if we use a viral model, which they use for themselves, the receptors on the society, the cell, have to be matched up to things that that society, that Overton window or whatever you want to call it, will accept in the first place. Yeah. So in other words, postmodernism is an extraordinarily sophisticated parasite on liberalism, as is, mm -hmm. frankly, critical theory. Yes. And those two things blend together because as at the root, what both of those things are doing is bifurcating off the world and dealing entirely in the social realm and in the realms of concepts and ideas. And they make their progress and they advance by context blending and playing with meaning. Mm -hmm. They don't advance by making observations about the world. They advance by playing in the conceptual space by blending context, which is how they marry a truth and a lie. Mm -hmm. And they do this by, by, Focusing on the 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 linguistic and conceptual infrastructure and the social ontology of the beliefs rather than their content. So the way to think about it is this. Your beliefs are constructed in a particular way. 
They're formed in a particular way. They're cashed out in a particular language through a particular process. They also have a content which either does or does not describe the world. Postmodernism, neo-Marxism, critical theory, Gnosticism, all of these things ignore the relationship between truth and the world and instead focus on all the processes through which uh, the beliefs are formed. The Gnostics viewed it as a sort of alchemy of creating beliefs and creating concepts, and that's the world in which you live. There's the absolute idealism that existed in the 17th, 18th century, and there's postmodernism. In analytic philosophy, this is often termed as anti-realism, term coined by Dummett. In every case, or in, sorry, let's let's wind that up. In the particular case which we're dealing with right now, uh, we can probably lay a lot of this at the feet of Antonio Gramsci. But Gramsci is an interesting character. He's got a lot of resentment going on. He's kind of a lame, I mean, physically disfigured guy. He's yeah, revolutionary. Well, he gets thrown in jail. He's got a lot to hate. The basic innovation introduced by the philosophy of praxis into the science of politics and of history is the demonstration that there is no abstract, quote unquote, human nature, fixed and immutable, a concept which certainly derives from religious and transcendentalist thought, but that human nature is the totality of historically determined social relations. Hence, a historical fact, which can within certain limits be ascertained with the methods of philology and criticism, consequently political science, as far as both its concrete content and its longitudinal formulation are concerned, must be seen as a developing organism. And Michel Fellopini quotes him as saying, society, as we have seen with human nature, does not contain any inherent eternal transcendent transcendent principle, its unfolding depends on the constant recomposition of its unity by the dominant ruling class. So right there, right there, you've got it. The unity is an illusion. It's a thing that's being superimposed on the world by dominant classes. There's no transcendent human nature of any kind. There right. is no thing that holds everything together. And there was a marvelous interview with Michael Foucault that he gave where he talks about this. And someone said, given that you don't believe in any structure or any unity, why should we believe you? What reason is there for us to believe you? And he laughs and says, there is no reason because he knows where this leads. Hmm. But his the postmodernists, their, their kind of method for dealing with liberalism, one of them is to just kind of laugh their way through continuing. They, you point out, well, look, you're cutting off the branch on which you sit. And they say, oh, that's just a pile of excuses. We're going to keep going. We're not at our final answer yet. We'll be able to answer all of your objections if you just give us enough time. And then they just proceed and keep going. Or they mot and bailey their way through. There is nothing outside the text. And you say, look, the entire world is just a text or irrelevantly like a text or to be viewed as like, well, no, I'm just saying there's nothing outside of context. Okay, so there's a context for everything. Okay, then they go back to the original proposition. There's a yeah. point where where Derrida says in Limited Ink, he says, he talks about, he says, I am not saying that there is no meaning or no absolute meaning or there that all meaning is not stable. And then he says, but if I am, if that's the accusation, that's false. But of course, if the accusation is that I am destabilizing all of meaning, well, then yes, I do that. And it's kind of like, okay, you just said you weren't doing the thing that you're doing, but That's you also are doing that. So we're yeah. just going back to Gramsci, just uh, 
focusing in on that, like where's the truth and the lie? Where How is he marrying truth and lie? Just about saying that everything is contingent on power, like all the, everything is culturally contextualized. Like, so that that's well, obviously true. Like everybody's, we're all a product of our environment, right? So there is the truth there. So where's the, where's the trick that, that this is the lie? Where's the truth, the lie that he's wedding? Well, he says the basic innovation introduced by the philosophy of practice into the science of politics is that demonstration that there is no abstract human nature fixed and immutable, but that human nature is the totality of historically determined social relations. So totality is the lie. That there is no human nature underneath this is a lie, uh, and that also can easily graft onto the uh, to the to kind of blank slate theories that kind of were floated around at the beginning of liberalism. Especially Locke was was big into the the blank slate. I actually want to seize upon the next sentence or whatever it was out of the out of Gramsci there though, which is where he says that it's like an evolving organism. So what you have with postmodernism, neo Marxism, and especially their fusion into woke in the West which mostly took place in the laboratory of education through critical pedagogy. Um, as much as we want to give Judith Butler some credit or something, uh, what we actually see is effectively antibiotic resistant uh, cultural bacteria. Um, the the woke or communism or hermeticism or Gnosticism or whichever one we want to label it as is all kind of like a virus or a more like, in this case, a, a pathogen. And what we've been doing through having, say, robust economic uh, development in the, in the West, having what they called advanced capitalism by actually inter introducing you know worker protections into the system so that it cannot actually be fully exploitative and so on, is we started to apply antibiotics to the disease of socialism. Uh, which is a gnosis. It is socialism is a gnostic belief, and we could unpack that for quite a while if we want. And so we applied antibiotic by basically making a functional economy. And what that did was it caused the bacteria that survived to become more dominant. And those were the ones that were grifting on other axes of um, of oppression as they frame the world. And so race, sex, gender, sexuality, and so on all fall out of particularly the Marcuse. But what allowed that to all kind of catch on, especially within the sex, gender, sexuality kind of paradigm was the deconstructive project where this postmodern thing that looks like, I mean, to use the word like Baudrillard might, or the, the prefix, that looks like hyper-liberalism. It looks like liberalism taken to its hyper-real you know, simulation or whatever. Um, that was that that makes a a kind of pathogen that is resistant to the medicine of uh, of of class struggle. Class struggle is like the disease, and we applied a medicine that prevents class struggle from taking over our society. And so, class struggle found its way to to evolve in other domains, and it found mechanisms to do it in other domains. Um, and so, this is this is where we end up with woke. It's like, it's like getting, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, staff infection that you can't get rid of antibiotic, antibiotic resistant staff or whatever on your, on your arm. MRSA. Is that what it's called? Yeah. MRSA. Hmm. Um, so it's like, it's like the equivalent of MRSA on your society. It's antibiotic resistant. Um, I guess that's, is that staff or strap? I guess that's staff, uh, that you just can't get rid of. That's a flesh eating bacteria. And that's sort of, what Gramsci said there is actually the key. When you slip into the realm of believing that all of human nature is the totality of 
socially determined relations, in other words, political contrivance, one person over another, when you slip into believing that and that all of human nature is, an, is a developing organism, what it is is that their mindset is looking for a way to attach and infect uh, around any medicine that you were to put down against it. And so at this point, the only way to actually cure this disease is going to be to very clearly identify it, identify its boundaries and start to excise it. Meanwhile, its primary mode of operation, like Wokel said, is to blur contexts, blur boundaries, which is the hermetic impulse, so that there is absolutely no way that you can figure out where do you make the cut. And if you can never make the cut, you can never cut it out of society. And so they want the postmodernism is perfect for that tool. Uh, or perfect for that purpose, I should say. Um, it, it is a very powerful tool against Western liberal societies. But the preposterous bit is that the proposed cure to this is allegedly to adopt a postmodern stance in total and then step into the realm of doing traditionalism okay. as a postmodern project. Yeah. Uh, no, we're going Caesarism to... Caesarism kind of thing. Yeah, Caesarism and so on. We're going to pretend to have... We're going to pretend to have traditional values in order so that we stop pretending to have no values, um, hmm. which is, is in essence, the induced postmodern reaction that moves the dialectic forward. And this is, I don't know if it's even recorded, but maybe it is where I started off earlier saying that I'm extraordinarily frustrated and pissed off lately and quite salty. Yeah. What postmodernism essentially does is it says there's... There's either there's always these veils that are supposed to be in front of us, right? The veil of perception, or a linguistic veil, or the the social veil in which all your categories are socially constructed, so you can't help but see the world through the categories bequeathed to you, and all of this stuff. And I've been writing something which I haven't yet read, but basically what I argue is this: I say, look, let's let's list these things out. Well, if the objection is that I can only have my own viewpoint. What what would what would solve that objection? Well, for me to have a view from everywhere, because I have no idea what it would mean to have a view from absolutely nowhere at all, or to have no view. Well, if the if the objection is that I'm historically constructed in a project of history, I would have to be, to get around that. I'd have to be eternal and outside of time. If if the problem is that my my I only have, I have limited terminology and limited language. I would, the solution to that would be to have infinite linguistic capacity. Yeah. If the problem is I'm socially conditioned, I'd have to be somebody who is outside of the social conditioning process. So we've just described a being that exists outside of time, has no limits knows everything from everywhere. We're describing God. And and what postmodernism is essentially doing is demanding of us that in order to have knowledge that we be God. And the correct answer to the postmodernists is stop trying to be God. So we're not this, trying to be God. 
Is this similar to, sorry if this is totally off point, but similar to the arguments around gender where they use sex, they map sex and they say, well, you can't actually define a woman, you can't actually define a man because any given construction of defining any of those things comes down to, it's, it, there's always an exception. There's always an exception. There's always an exception. And therefore gender somehow resolves those exceptions by by pulling them into a projected state of self you know, deification through gender am i totally off base here i'm just trying to see how in practice and current woke discourse or anti-woke and woke discourse this is playing out these big so the way the way that that works there's a there's a there's a few things that are going on and all of this is mixed so the thing you're talking about is the postmodern wing and the way that it uses language so the postmodernists were essentially focused took all of this stuff and said look because there's this veil of perception. You only see things through linguistic categories. You can't see reality in and of itself. You don't get the world. All you get is your perception of the world. All you get is the terms and the language and the categories that were bequeathed to you. All you get is your own perspective. Da, 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 da. What's the one thing that you do have that you have direct contact with is language. That's the thing that you have direct contact with. Well, well and I'll just make another point. If a criteria for knowledge is I have to have that that the world has to have direct contact with my consciousness, that would require that in order to have knowledge, you'd have to be someone where A, either the world exists in your consciousness, or B, your, your consciousness is just fully blended into the entirety of the world. Guess what? You know who can do that? God. Who can have the world be a product of his consciousness? Or who can have the world exist in his consciousness? There's one guy who can do that. His name is God. Again, right? That's that's the constant theme, that the only thing you, way you can have knowledge is if you're literally God. That's it. So, or objective knowledge. They they keep they they waffle on that point. So stop trying to be God. Their lang what they do with language, and James was hitting on this and saying that they ha- they do have uh they're very sensitive to things. They're like a guy who's who can wield a hammer. That's his only tool. And so he can take off screws with a hammer, and he uses a hammer to remove bolts, and he uses a hammer to do weather stripping, and he uses the hammer as his paintbrush, and that's all he does. His painting's going to be terrible. His woodworking's going to be terrible. His removal of bolts is going to be terrible. But if you need a nail pounded in, boy, I know who to call. And the postmodernists are like that with language. Because they're so obsessed with it and so sensitive to every little thing that goes on, they're really good at at using language. And so what you're seeing there is the people who are focusing on the social construction and the linguistic construction are doing what you're talking about. And what they're doing is they're blending those two things. So on the one hand, they're blending that analysis that there is no human nature, there is no well, there's no essence of any kind to anything. There's no form. There's no soul. There's no inherent way things are supposed to be. There's nothing like that. Right? That's all gone. There are no substances. Okay? There's, are you following there, there's me there? There's sex. So we can define sex on any given category, but this, there's always a boundary where sex is, escapes, like XY, XXY. Like the, I'm getting to that. To, okay. So what they're going to do is you're going to say, well, we can define male and female. And they're going to say those definitions are entirely arbitrary. 
you picked some you picked random things and cobbled them together and then treated them like they were unified there's that false unity idea right look you could have said people with five fingers and green eyes and uh blonde hair that's a sex and people with size six shoes and a 33 to 32 hip wrist waist ratio and Crohn's disease, that's a sex. You happened to pick particular chromosome sets, arbitrarily defined amounts of particular hormones, and genital configuration. You called that a sex. You could have done it with anything. Hmm. Why? Because you had a particular interest in a particular way of ideology, and that caused you to break up the world in a particular way. The way that they make this go, what you're talking about is Every time you try to give a definition, they just pick at it, right? They just, well, what about Klinefelter syndrome? What about someone who's had testicular cancer and therefore has had to have their testicles removed? Are they still a man? What about somebody who was born impotent? What about somebody with a mobile sperm? Is that really a man? And what they're doing is they're picking the word apart. And what they're doing, the game is to say, that if you can't show where the boundary line is exactly, then you don't have a proper distinction. That's the game. Therefore, therefore you don't have proper or objective knowledge. You don't know. That's so right. Talking about. Right. So if there's no proper distinction, then you have to have somebody who sets themselves up as an arbiter for the distinction. And they say, you think it should be you based on all this arbitrary stuff, but look at all the problems that it caused when you did that. And we're not going to cause those problems because we're aware of them and you weren't even aware of them. So it might as well be us because uh, there's no particular difference. This is the technique that I call dialectical inversion. It's, in fact, their primary technique. It is the primary deconstructive technique is to say these two things that are different because you can't clearly delineate how they're different uh, in a mm -hmm. perfect way are therefore actually the same. Wokel did a great thread on Twitter this morning uh, as the day that we're recording this about how all teaching is political. Teaching is always a political act. Well, what they're doing is they're saying all teaching, all education is basically the same thing. It's just doing politics through the act of pedagogy. And therefore, look at all the problems yours created. So it's all the same. doesn't matter. Teaching is always some kind of political act. And then there's all these problematics that arise from your method. And there are no problematics that we have to point to from our method because we haven't even been allowed to try it yet. But we know what yours are so we're obviously going to do it better so give us the power and that's the dialectical inversion that's the trick that's the that's the magic spell what you're talking about with sex in particular the wizard in 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 question here really comes back to foucault foucault is the father of queer theory this is i think utterly un unambiguous uh, he had a kind of primordial mother, if we want to get really kind of mythological and archetypal about it, who's Simone de Beauvoir. And that the the genealogy on this isn't hypothetical. This isn't like, oh, James put some stuff together or Wokel saw it and thought this might be interesting. You actually have Beauvoir writing down, you know, one is not born but becomes woman in this huge articulation in the second sex of what it means to define yourself as woman absent social expectations of womanhood, which she identified with patriarchal power. And the kind of quest for a woman is either to accept socially imposed patriarchy or to decide to liberate herself from that and seek to, to see what a woman is in herself outside of any external definition. Yeah. And Foucault openly picks up Beauvoir's project and says, well, what is a homosexual? And 
David Halperin later tells us in the 90s, reflecting back on Foucault, when Foucault says the homosexual, what he actually means is, in the sense of queer theory, the queer, the person who doesn't fit in, the person who's outside of the norms of sexuality. So it's not necessarily strictly somebody that's same-sex attracted. Or and somebody so whose desires fall outside of the expected Correct. norms. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Anybody who's outside of what's considered normative, which is considered to have been erected arbitrarily, sexual normative in the having sex sense or sexual normative in terms of male female sense either way and that's by the way a huge fruitful playground for them in language that sex means an act and sex means a uh, biological condition at the same time they play in that pun all all the time but what Foucault says is it is effectively the same thing is that there's this hierarchical binary between homosexual and heterosexual and the homosexual can only be defined in terms of the heterosexual in other words the queer can only be defined in opposition to that which excludes it which is normalcy and there's your birthplace of queer theory itself Hmm. now what happens is he lays down this idea and this is where we tie back to everything we've already been talking about and I had a hard time with this idea. And I actually, when I read Foucault, I glazed right past it. I just thought it was postmodern bullshit and he just ignored it. Mm-hmm. But Judith Butler seizes upon it and Judith Butler repeats it again and again throughout both gender trouble and bodies that matter. And it's really weird that this, it's very obvious, I guess, that it's um, a formative concept for Butler's philosophy. And she's considered in many regards one of the mothers of queer theory proper. And so that sentence is, um, to paraphrase, because I don't have it in front of me, that it is not that the body imprisons the soul, but that the soul imprisons the body. And so I just thought that was postmodern inverting you know, nonsense. Obviously, when we're talking about the imprisonment of one's being at, at some essential level, we are also talking about a Gnostic impulse here. You're which in is, carceral I think, the heart state that you speak yeah, about. Right. Gnostic but idea. Foucault inverts what you would think it is. You would think, oh, I was born in the wrong body, therefore I need to transition. And that's the mentality that the body is a prison for who their gender soul inside really should be. But Foucault said it's not that way. And Judith Butler built queer theory out of saying it's not that way. It's that the soul imprisons the body. And so what does that mean? Well, the soul is this sum totality of social relations that have created a patriarchal heteronormative order that say when that baby pops out of the womb and is born and the doctor looks at it and says it's a boy, that you now have a social mechanism, which is the realm of the spirit here. The soul is the realm of how everybody agrees is that some totality of of social mechanisms and historical processes. So now you have this doctor who assigns a sex at birth. He says, oh, it's a boy. He has no idea what that person feels like, has no concept, but he says this thing that came out based on bodily characteristics. And that's why the trans people say you are obsessed with genitals when obviously they are the ones obsessed with genitals. By the way, if you really want to find out what's going on, I strongly encourage the very disgusting habit of going and reading some of the porn they write for themselves. They tell you everything about how fucked up their worldview is if you actually read the stuff they think other people aren't reading rather than their political nonsense that they put out it's very obvious who's obsessed with genitals um it's very obvious who's obsessed with a lot of really paraphilic things uh but at any rate the doctor assigns a sex at birth and then all of society rushes in so there's this there's the spirit that's the holy spirit in all of this modern era gnosticism from hegel and rousseau on down 
uh, is that the society itself, the social conditioning, the power that Foucault is talking about and how power flows through everybody and conditions us in this social constructivist uh, idea that Butler is harping on with 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 the idea of gender trouble and gender performativity is that society says, hey, based on these conditions of your body, which were arbitrarily determined to mean something about who you are by a doctor, we're now going to reify that and force you to perform a role consistent with that that sense. And so it is actually the conditioning of your soul to make you feel like you're supposed to be a certain way that forces you to make your body appear a certain way. So the soul is what's imprisoning the body. You are conditioned by social forces to believe it is appropriate and normal to be a certain way based on external features that don't really mean anything as to who you really are. And so that sense of socialized uh, conditioning, that sense of uh, normal, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a, a constraint is not the right word, but that you are, expectation is the word I'm looking for. There's a social expectation that if you happen to have a penis and testicles and so on, that you're going to look and act and portray yourself as a boy. You're going to develop your body in a masculine way. You're going to build muscle. You're going to present with, you know, short hair and all of these different features, grow a beard or whatever it happens to be. And if you happen to have, you know, ovaries and a uterus and a vagina, then you're going to present yourself as softer and pretty and da da da, whatever the deal is, longer hair. And you're going to do this because society, which is the modern and postmodern um, spiritual realm, is now enforcing, it's the Holy Spirit in a sense, it's the Weltgeist, by the way, enforcing upon you how you're supposed to be imprisoning you in a body uh, that you are constructing. So your soul is imprisoned in your body because you are building your own, you are con, con, conditioned to build your own prison for yourself through your body. And this is why they talk about bodies in such a weirdly disembodied way. Yeah. Uh, so s- gender is a way for them to leap out of that space of biological reality and into the world of social contingency that they think is what's really what matters. Um, your gender is who you really are. Your sex is this thing that happens as an accident of birth that should not be deterministic upon you. And then society is actually the thing that comes along and teaches you that you have to imprison yourself according to this material, fallen, profane thing that is your body with genitals, which they are obsessed with. Uh, in fact, the most profane thing, genitals um the second most profane thing maybe is it would be genitals after like uh, your butthole and so for lack of a better <laughs> a better term for your your elimination system and so this is the mentality that's behind the whole sex gender thing even the most crude uh person who's been brought into the cult that doesn't have any of these details or understanding kind of on an intuitive level perceives the world this way as a result of having learned the social constructivist model. And um, what Wokel was talking about that relates back to this in terms of, you know, objective truth is this is what you and I, Benjamin, talked about the other day with Mike Nana. uh, And, you know, somebody in the super chats asked if you have truth and reality as two sides of a trinity, what's the third one? And I immediately said epistemology. And I went and thought about this more. And as a matter of fact, there are multiple answers to that question. In fact, I thought of four distinct mm-hmm. answers to the question, What is which the question is, what defines the relationship between reality and truth? 
So reality is what is. Truth is our uh, our understanding of what is, in some sense, when it's accurate. And I'm being very vague on purpose by what I mean by that, because there are four fundamentally different answers to that question. Um, I said epistemology, by which I meant the correspondence theory of truth, that which corresponds to reality is true. So we can determine what's true by testing its correspondence to physical reality by perhaps seeing if different observers obtain the same result is is what's called scientific universality. Um, That is one answer. The relationship is that we're going to be very cautious and rigorous and circumspect in how we determine what we know. Well, uh, the answer that's given within the woke world is actually something referred to as nociology, which is in a sense... Uh, what Hegel called for nunft or what um, Plato called episteme, which is funny because it's the root for the word epistemology. But the idea with that is that it's that you already kind of know the relationship as it's supposed to be in this kind of anti-real way. What seems to correspond is just an illusion. The correspondence theory of truth is just an illusion that you don't need. So you have this completely second answer where it boils down to that which serves what we already believe, that which serves the the cult belief. In other words, I am secretly God and I secretly know it. That is how you determine the relationship between reality and truth. Now, the term that Hegel used for this instead of reality is actuality, that reality, in Mm -hmm. fact, is a illusion. It's kind of a base starting place. But what you're actually concerned with is actuality, which is the constructed world through the sum total of human social and political relations. What has been made to become is actual, and what is real is kind of irrelevant. Hmm. A third answer to this question is actually just grounded in kind of pre-modern religious faith. God has ordained what is objectively true, and if we look to the word, and then we find what's objectively true, the end. And that, of course, is something that has... Uh, it can have a relationship with either of the other two models. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for example, if it's very heavily dependent on revelation, it starts to look very heavily like Gnosis. I know the correct interpretation of the Bible because I do, or or scripture more generally, or it can have a lot in common with epistemology if it has kind of very um, circumspect and rigorous approaches to exegesis looking for authorial intent. I don't know what the original intention of this book is. So we're going to be very skeptical as we proceed to try to to exegete this text in terms of what it originally meant and what it was originally communicating. So that has more in common with with epistemology than it does with nociology. Um, And a fourth is actually rooted, basically, it's very pragmatist in its orientation, which is that it's that which works must be true. And that's um, kind of a, it's almost like techni or almost like technology driven. Uh, And the fact of the matter is that Marxism actually adopts a position on both of those at the same time. It's not pure nociology. Uh, Marx, if you go to Marxist.org and look up their definition for truth, they say that the Marxist definition of truth is very close to the pragmatic definition of truth. That which works is true. The materialist. Except what works is what advances the cause of theory. It must be consistent with theory or it didn't work. So it has that Gnostic element to it that they know the correct answer ahead of time. 
but it also has the pragmatic element, which is the fusion of theory and praxis for them, which is that if it's practical for advancing the cause, if it advances the revolution, then it's true. And so there are these kind of four answers in a sense, you know, what's technologically possible, what is, you know, epistemologically possible, what is nociologically, and then what did God say, yeah, which I, of course, you know, am a little skeptical of anybody who claims to know for sure what God said and meant. Um, that seems not to be a disposition that tends to come up, come to good results very often. Um, but that relationship between truth and reality is in fact, I think the, the, the heart of this question that they're playing around in. And for people such as ourselves, um, I think we are strongly invested in the, the, the course, they're called realists philosophically, are highly invested in the correspondence theory of truth. The other three positions, if and maybe there are more, are less or in fact sometimes not at all interested in the correspondence theory of truth or in fact think the correspondence theory of truth is laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's this disconnect. So when we see a baby be born and we see certain genital configurations and maybe we test and we see chromosomal arrangements or whatever, we see a stack of pieces of evidence that point to an objectively true claim that anybody would be able to determine. Anybody could observe the genital configuration. Anybody could observe the chromosomes. Anybody could measure the hormone levels and see whether they fall within particular ranges that are defined to be normal for each sex because of huge amounts of statistical data that um, define what normal means in the statistical sense as opposed to the societally normative sense. And would be able to conclude, yes, this is a male. Yes, this is a female. We could even look at, we could even dig up their bones from 50,000 years ago and figure out sometimes just from a finger bone, if it's male or female, you don't even have to see the difference in pelvis and all of this. And so there are lots of objective criteria that correspond to the real world because anybody could do the experiment. But the other positions have ways of getting around that and or yeah. usurping it really well, um, but but a man is expected to be a man a woman's expected to be a woman you can't completely dismiss that a woman isn't uh conformed to social expectations and man men conform to social expectations and we do put restraints and we train men and women as men and as women in order for men and women to get along and have babies and, and create society okay so when james is talking about sex There is a game that is being played here. I said earlier that a lot of this stuff has been dealt with, and it was dealt with by, probably best, by the philosopher John Searle, who is one of the, I keep quoting him, people are like, why do you keep quoting him? Because a lot of this stuff, the way that they use language, the way, the very, remember I said the woke are very, very good with language. If you ever need it, like the guy with the hammer, right? He's paint. He's painting with a hammer. He's eating with his hammer. He's cutting a steak with a hammer. I mean, he, he's going to cook terribly and he can't paint worth a darn. But if you ever need somebody to hammer a nail, that's him. John Searle is the liberal equivalent of that guy. The one who has a really, really, really deep and thorough understanding of, of how language works. And what's going on is that the woke are taking advantage of a feature of language and a certain particular view in order to leverage those two things to be able to say that, look, you can't make your distinction. Men and women, those concepts don't actually map onto the world the way that James says they do. Remember, like you guys said, well, this child has a certain general configuration. Yeah, but if the child had a certain eye color, we could call that a gender. 
We could we could start making it so that people with blue eyes and green eyes are getting together. We could construct societies so that people with certain eyebrow thickness get together. We could construct societies so that people get together according to shoe size by genital configuration. Why not liver configuration or kidney configuration? They're, they're all about getting the set of necessary and sufficient conditions for, for this and that and the other thing. Unless you can have a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that lay out precisely what something is, your distinction isn't there. Derrida said, I confirm it for me, the point of theory and concept, unless a distinction can be made rigorous and precise, it really isn't a distinction. And Searle says, it is clear from this discussion that Derrida has a conception of concepts according to which they have a crystalline purity that would exclude all marginal cases. It is also clear on his view that intentional states have this feature and they have what he calls ideal self-presence. He is mistaken in supposing that these views are widely shared. In fact, I cannot think of any important philosopher's language who now holds such views, and it is not surprising he gives no examples. The very opposite has been more or less universally accepted for a half century, and I will shortly give some reasons why Derrida's conception of concepts could not be more mistaken. He does not understand what is going on. Derrida doesn't get it. So there's a couple of problems going on with what Derrida is doing, and the first is that Searle has an idea called the background, the background and the network. The network is the sum total of your beliefs. Every idea you could have in your head is part of the network. Every memory that you have is part of the network. Every idea, every axiom, every proposition, every aesthetic sense, that's all part of your network of, 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 of intentionality, right? Intentionality in this sense just means ofness or aboutness. Every thought, idea, sensation, perception you have that is of or about something, that's the, that's the network. The background refers to a set of background capacities. This is things like sight, taste, being able to reason, the capability to have mental images, the capacity to learn language, the ability to have social tools, to be able to understand other people's intentions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The background is your capacities. The network is the intent is is all of the ideas and thoughts and everything in your head that could possibly be about something. At one point, if you follow the network and the background, the network enough and deep enough, it gets into the background. And the background, if you follow that, gets into your the social background your understanding of your society, the things you take for granted, your ability to understand English, for example, that bleeds into the biological background, which is your having a prefrontal cortex, et cetera, et cetera, right? So one leads into the other. If you follow it deep enough, you get right into the biological machinery that allows us to do these things, okay? All right. The background, all of the background presuppositions that occur or that exist, all of our background knowledge and our entire intentional network, all of the stuff that makes that up is impossible to list. And so every distinction can be blurred at the margins. Let me give you an example. So I'll use this example. Suppose I want to order a hamburger. So James brings me a hamburger, but it's in a concrete box that's locked. Did he give me what I asked for? Well, you might say technically he did. So I think, okay, very clever, James. So it's next day I go, hey, James, a hamburger, no concrete box. And James says, okay, well, here's a titanium box with a hamburger in it. I think, yeah, okay. So I say, James, I want one, but a hamburger. 
but not in any kind of locked container of any kind. So James brings out a petrified hamburger from the days of King Tut that was found and says, here you go. This is for you to eat. And I say, okay, I want a hamburger, not in any kind of locked container and also not petrified. So James brings me a hamburger that is rotten, that's been sitting in the sun all day. So finally, I, you see what I mean? There's a whole pile of background knowledge and other intentional states, other propositions that make up the meaning and provide context. And it is impossible, even in principle, to list all of them. Can we read this? It says, Hank quickly realized that he wasted the first of his three wishes. Yeah, he asked for a big cock, right? <laughs> and 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 that can be mean a general or it can mean a chicken. It's important to have funny examples. Yeah. So what they're doing with the woke or doing with sex and, and all this crap is oh, there. Can I just, can sense... I just finish this? Oh yeah. Sorry. My brain sorry, is going to burst. It's going to explode. Okay. Well, actually so I kind of point... want to see that. Hold on. Let me keep interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> so the point is this, and then, and then I'll shut up for a bit. The point is this, that the way the, there are certain features of language and certain features of the way that we as humans operate, which require that there is a fuzzy border around the edges of words and language, but that there is a core that is solid. The feature of us is that language that we occur in a network, that meaning occurs, we, we interpret in a network against a background, right? We have a network of beliefs that occur against a background of capacities, and because those can differ slightly, and because we have different experiences, which means that our network is full of different thoughts or whatever that we've bumped into, there's going to be certain fuzzy edges. And then it's a, a the other is a feature of language, which is that when you try to define a word, it's impossible to state every bit of background knowledge yeah. that that is part of what defines that word. Derda kind of picked up on this a little bit. And Derrida tried to say, well, see, there's nothing to ground language. But as Searle so wonderfully points out to us, Derrida's problem is that he assumes that if a distinction, if there's any marginal cases at all, that the language doesn't work. And Searle's saying, no, that's no problem to us. All of them are fuzzy. So how do you determine where the border is? Well, if you can find a spot between two concepts where you're not quite sure, what you or if you if you're giving examples that are on the line, it's because you know where the lines are. That the lines admit of some fuzziness or of some disagreement does not mean that there is no center of the concept. The existence of unclear cases does not turn poles into spectrums. And the right. fact that there are some marginal cases does not mean that there are paradigm cases. And the fact that there are unclear cases does not mean that there are no clear cases. Yeah, that's right. They think that where there's a fuzzy boundary between concepts, that there's a permeable, permeable boundary between concepts, and that's right. simply not true. Um, that it's that, for example, that you can't tell the difference between uh, you know a leaf and a pile of leaves, which exact number of leaves makes it switch to a pile, uh, or which exact configuration, you know, if they're stacked neatly and tightly, or if they're stacked kind of loosely and not quite touching each other. Like when they fall from the tree, they're kind of all over the place, but nobody calls it a pile, but you rake them up into into 
you know, a kind of collected heap. And then you think of it as a pile uh, and heap is a similar word that you can't say where that is specifically doesn't mean anything. It's not permeable. It's like you said, it's not a spectrum. You can, you can argue if you want about whether or not this can constitutes an actual pile. I don't know if that's a pile of leaves. It's a kind of short of a pile. Don't you? It's a little disorganized for a pile, but then at the end of the day, normal people are like, it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. And that's as simple as it gets. Like, this is just, we have, why don't we just rake the leaves because we've got stuff to do that has nothing to do with whether we call this a real pile or not. And we know what a pile is. And if you don't want to call it a pile, I don't care. Then this is also, I mean, listening to vocal just now, actually, frankly, made me understand why people used to punch philosophers. Um, and it's like philosophers got to have a job at the, uh, at the pleasure of like nobility and rulers who would basically mm. put them up is because it's like at some point you've got practical shit to do that has nothing to do with Splitting what hairs. exactly words mean. Um, and people that, that, that have confused that for the pursuit of wisdom or the love of wisdom is, is just, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They yeah, want, I, I, they want to have a sort of crystalline purity of concepts in order to remove uh, any a, a possibility of misinterpretation. Except, but no, they don't. They don't. That's local. not that's not possible. Well, I'm talking what about they, what the, they what the logical positivists want is, positivist that, is to hold people to that standard so that they can yes. assert themselves as having power that's that they don't have. And if we were going to be correct. religious, in other words, they're going to deny the true authority of God so that they can claim authority in the worldly sphere as Satan. That's it's correct. literally the, the the myth or metaphor of, of, of Satan. And so they want to hold people to a literally impossible standard so that they say you can't hold yourself to that standard. And then in your space of confusion, they usurp power over you. And they say, well, right. here's this little insight where I've confused you. So clearly, let me be your guru, um, which is always the Gnostic temptation. It's that thing you know, you know it okay. You kind of know where a pile is. But I know that you don't know it all. And if you come with me, I can show you some secrets that will elucidate how little you actually know, which can be that you know the next step and lead people down a primrose path. Or it can be, which might be fake, by the way, or it can be that you don't have the slightest idea what a more complicated understanding looks like, but you create the illusion that you do, which is what Judith Butler was very credibly accused of doing uh, by Martha Nussbaum, another feminist of you know, annoying thought. And so Nussbaum said that she was the professor of parody and basically, not even basically, explicitly said in this essay she wrote, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, that Judith Butler doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. And what she's Correct. doing is what she's doing with this complicated language and these obscure ideas and these these is holding people to standards and this blurring of all the boundaries is she setting herself up as somebody to whom you have to turn every time you want an answer. She doesn't really have answers and she can make them up as she goes and be as conditional or, or self-serving or whatever she wants. So you don't actually have to know, say, the next level of knowledge. You only have to convince people that you know things they don't know in order to set or yourself up. Or that they don't as, know what they know. And that's why Nussbaum called her a guru. Uh, this is guru behavior. This is, in other words, Gnostic behavior. It, it's a Gnostic. It's a style of Gnostic abuse. What they're, what I was going to say before about what they're doing with sex specifically, uh, one of the, or one of the things, or many things, but one of the things they're doing with sex specifically is they're talking about, uh, they're confusing the aspects of um, 
biological selection and the aspects of sexual selection and saying by mixing those two contexts together, they're saying, because they are very uh, interdependent. When you were asking, aren't we um, the products of our what our society tells us men and women are supposed to be? Well, sort of, not really. You could think of those as, as heuristics that people have figured out that say, well, or we have some underlying biology. We don't know why something turns us on and therefore makes us want to make babies. But certain things do. And when men act like this, it tends to work out better for them statistically. And when women act like this, it works out better for them statistically. And when they harmonize together these ways instead of those ways, it works out better statistically. Which so is these a are pragmatic, right so ways. socially speaking, pragmatic knowledge uh, when we're talking about like truth and, and reality. I don't even think that's pragmatic is... knowledge. I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I guess the way that it's being communicated is kind of this pragmatic or tacit knowledge about what it takes to for, for men and women to end up successfully mating in significant numbers and producing healthy functional societies. But the, um, the thing that they're doing is they're saying, well, you think that, you know, a girl with, you know, whatever hair and whatever breasts and whatever hips and whatever dress and whatever shoes and whatever present presentation is attractive, but not everybody does. And so what it turns out is that human beings, because of our social, uh, aspects of our being, what it means to be human is actually to be extremely social. We are intrinsically a hyper-social animal or ultra-social, I think is the technical term. We are an ultra-social animal is that there are lots of, we have an extraordinarily high variability in sexual selection criteria. Compare that to say birds of paradise, which have these very elaborate mating dances and very kind of preposterous you know, feather costumes that they grow into. The peacock is a, not a bird of paradise, but it's an example also of a strong sexual selection driven, um, uh, you know, set of characteristics, physical characteristics. There are these very strong sexual selection characteristics, but it turns out that the variability in human sexual selection characteristics is very high. So they say, well, then that's the sexuality part, which they then, because of the sex, sex pun, yeah. work into the sex part and say, whoa, it's so high. And so maybe some guys are attracted to guys who look a little more boyish and these, they're not gay, but that's, but they're still attracted to boy or more tomboy looking girls. And then maybe some are into really girly girls. And so you can't say what the correct method of attraction is this is frankly horseshit uh there are what it is is it boils down to we have a particular set of sexual selection criteria that are highly variable in human beings which doesn't have anything to do with uh actual underlying sex or sexuality it doesn't make genitals arbitrary in pairing for example as the queer theory and trans uh trans activism lobbies tend to try to portray um, it also doesn't mean that we're only attracted to, although we can be triggered by external forms, uh, you know, they'll say they'll provoke by putting out a, you know, statistical anomaly of a trans woman who happens to be, you know, outwardly very attractive. And then all of a sudden surprise you with a picture of her ding dong and uh, or his ding dong, actually. And you say, see, you were attracted until you saw the genitals. But that's not freaking arbitrary. Like that's. Mm -hmm literally not arbitrary that in fact is probably you know at some level that's not even it's like that's your frontal cortex trying to override the lizard piece back underneath it's like no don't we don't sword fight here um if you will and so what they're doing is they're blurring all of those contexts and so what what Wokel's long articulation on this complicated philosophy is is that what we're dealing with is for people 
what we're dealing with with woke and all of these postmodern philosophers is that they are seeking to establish themselves in a position of authority, not by seeking clarity, but by c- seeking confusion. And then they Correct. assert themselves as the um, navigators of confusion. So they're basically saying our intrinsic state in the world is that of confusion because our concepts aren't perfectly clear, but we can help you navigate that. And what becomes the arbiter, and this pulls it back to the romantic claim I made earlier, is the sincerity of lived experience that we then try to express through that language. That's what's at the bottom. If all of this complicated language crap, if we stripped it all away, we would have nothing but unbridled and unmitigated experience, which would be the true experience of being alive, which in fact would I mean, this is in essence the same project as as the Hermetic project. If we strip away all the illusory distinctions, we return back to the pure, undifferentiated experience of God, uh, which is the true nature of reality, which has been hidden from us by our belief that the, that our distinctions are meaningful and important. And so, this it's, it's it's the exact same project in that regard. But what they are doing is sowing confusion in order to set themselves up or sell themselves as the navigators through the confusion. The epitome of that was in the moment where Kentanji Brown, and I've said this 80 billion times, where Kentanji Brown Jackson could not answer the question, what is a woman posed by Marsha Blackburn in her com- Supreme Court confirmation hearing? And she said, I don't know. I'm not a biologist, which is the incorrect thing to have said. That's transphobic technically. But what she said is, I, as a woman, am unable and am unable to discern for myself what a woman is without the help of a guide or an expert or a guru or a Gnostic who can tell me what it actually means. Hmm. And this is but the exact... she's going to decide what the constitution means. So she's an expert in her own field, but wherever the constitution touches reality, she needs to well, enlist a so-called expert. That's what... Yeah. And she's going to expect people. So this is the same mentality that led us into catastrophe through COVID and will again through the climate crisis, unless we stop with this freaking disease of expertitis that has taken over the society. Her consistency there, and there is, is I'm an expert in law, so you should listen to whatever I say about law because I have the I have the guru status there, but I can't adjudicate on what a woman is because I have to d- defer to a gender studies expert to understand the meaning of gender, which I can't do. So this underlying um, hmm. Mentality so is we must be... defer to the people who are ordained as experts. The but people she who decides who an expert authority. is. She she would defer to a gender studies expert rather than a biologist. When when push comes to shove, she could just be using the expertitis to launder. Yes, ideas but what's that she doesn't necessarily up. have to argue for. She, she just but what's being held argument. up universally is the expertitis that there are. There are gurus that are certified. There are people who have obtained the gnosis. There are elect who yeah. are the people in each different domain of life that you will turn to to get your answers, which you cannot determine for yourself. And enter Sam yeah. Harris into the chat. But hold on, hold on. Cyril provided an answer for us, which I've already read, and I will I will read it again. Yeah, they're clearly wrong. The justification I have for my linguistic intuitions as expressed by my linguistic characterizations is simply that I am a native speaker of a certain dialect of English and consequently have mastered the rules of that dialect, which mastery is both partially described and manifested in my linguistic characterizations of elements of that dialect. Mm -hmm. The only answer that I can give to the question, how do you know, for example, that women are female, is to give other linguistic characterizations. Woman means adult human female. 
or if pushed by the insistent, how do you know question beyond linguistic characterizations altogether to say, I speak English. No, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's his point is that these, these <clears throat> they're doing another game, which is the, is, is making the claim that the ontology is formed by the language. Right. And Which ultimately comes from a philosopher nobody's heard of. They, they, and then there's a second distinction between epistemology and ontology, which mm -hmm. they're also blurring. Mm -hmm. The question, how do you know, versus what exists? And so what they're doing is when you say, look, there are men and women, and we have variations, but those are the two poles which we're aiming at. And the fact that sometimes evolution has random mutations which lead to things like Klein filters doesn't change the fact that almost everybody winds up in one of the two poles and that the two poles are what the evolutionary apparatus is aiming at in some sense. That's right. In order for us to, you know, propagate the species, kind of an important thing, right? Well, unless you know like climate change and propagating the species is an unimportant thing. That's another matter. We can get into that though. Um and so what they do is they they attack the idea that you can understand what the word means and that the word is constantly being shifted. We we used to say we're under uh an, we are a nation under laws not men. And the whole point is that if you can make the words mean if if nobody knows what the laws mean, you now become a nation under the people who interpret the laws. You have an aristocracy of legal minds, which tells you what things can mean or can't mean. Similarly, you can wind up in a situation where we have a sort of aristocracy of meaning, mm -hmm. where words only mean, where, and this is in large part what the postmoderns are attempting to do, is create an aristocratic class of people who get to decide what things mean. That's right. They want it's a Pythagorean cult over and over and yes. over again all yes. throughout history. They want mm. they want to control what things mean. And because if you can control meaning, then you can ultimately control social behavior in some sense. It's a form of social control. And so what they're after is this is why no matter what no matter what you do, nothing ever means what it says it means. Now, Searle in that same article talks about look, I can communicate my my stuff all the time. We communicate every single day, altogether. That's what language is about. It's about communication. It's not about forming an ontology of anything or creating anything. It's about communication. That's what we're doing when we're language, and that's the point of language is shared intention, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, and and the social constructivists will push back on that. But ironically, in order to push back on that, they have to keep talking and keep mm -hmm. attempting to communicate because that's what we're doing. We're not creating the world. We're describing it. We we do engage in creation of the world with language, but the idea that the language determines how the world is created is completely wrong. Because yeah, we can create new words all the time. I mean, the postmodernists are the best example I can think of of why that's wrong, because they have created an entire lexicon of terminology to describe the way that they think the world is. We are not trapped in our language, because if we were, they never could have created an entire dictionary of things 
So they right. they undercut the branch of which they sit with their own behavior. They hold us to a set of standards about language, which couldn't possibly be met in order to give themselves room to come in and say, ah, you didn't really understand. So now I'm going to blend all these contexts in ways which you haven't thought. And when people say, oh, I hadn't thought of that way before, or they get that feeling of guru-ness. Like when somebody says something really profound, you know that feeling that you get? When someone says something like, oh, I've never thought of it that way before. They're constantly trying to create that feeling. They're constantly trying to go after that with their interpretations. They're constantly trying to to reconfigure the meaning of things in order to aim at their own political ends. And they want it to be treated as though it's wisdom. And really all they're doing is blending contexts and playing with words and playing around at the margins and then people who don't understand the way that the language game is, is being played are left in the feeling like the guy who sees a magician's trick and is amazed by it. And once you can get people to understand how the linguistic game is being played, that feeling of being dazzled begins to disappear. Once you know how the magician's doing his trick, it's not amazing anymore. Oh, you, you hid the card in your pocket? That's not amazing. It's yeah, totally amazing right. when the card disappears and then shows up again and you have no idea where it went. That's why Maybe they have to attack the idea of stability of meaning. They yes. have to attack stability of meaning and they have to attack any relationship between meaning and, and reality because that's the only place that a cult can rule. It has to be that the words have arbitrary, not stable meanings. So when Kentonji Brown Jackson doesn't know what a woman is, so she has to go ask an expert. If the expert were to give consistent answers to what a woman is, that would undercut their entire project because the expert now loses all of their power. Because then, oh, Kentonji Brown Jackson can learn what a woman is. She can become clear yeah, on it for good. herself, and she no longer has to defer to the person uh, who is giving her the answer. So the power that's invested in confusion or navigating confusion evaporates. So you're not able to interpret the world for yourself. You're not able because you have no language to to articulate it in, but you're not even able to articulate the world for yourself either because even the words that you use are matters of interpretation. This is what Derrida's kind of very famously uh, usually attached to the idea that the reader has supremacy in terms of interpreting meaning over the author. If I write a thing and Wokel reads it and he thinks, you know, if I write a thing about the Marxification of education and as as Helen Pluckrose put it very famously one time, and he thinks that it's a book about bunny rabbits, I have no authority whatsoever to dispel his metaphor that it's actually secretly talking about rabbits. And so, therefore, I have no standing to say, no, the book's actually about Paulo Freire and education. And he says, no, 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 it's actually about rabbits, and you just don't understand why. They have to maintain this ability to where confusion reigns, because anytime people can start to ascertain reality for themselves or understand truth or communicate their ideas clearly to one another, it undercuts the basis of their power. And that's the, I mean, that's as proof positive as you can get that what you're dealing with is cultocracy or cult running uh, things through political processes. And like I said, this is the Pythagorean cult filtered into the Platonic cult that he called the Republic, uh, filtered into the New Age movement of 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 medieval, late medieval, early modern Europe. Uh, Hegel, of course, was a Neoplatonist that recodified a lot of this into the modern form. 
following Rousseau and Kant, who were investing the uh, the spiritual realm, uh, actually investing, saying that the spiritual realm is is in essence uh, articulated and manifested through the social yeah. realm. Um, that's especially Rousseau and Hegel. Uh, we're doing that, and then on down the line from there to where we end up with this woke and postmodern, all of this crap. But, but the the goal is they must prevent people from being able to discern and communicate the world for themselves without the mediator of a navigator to what actually there is meaning. So this is one reason that I say there are kind of two approaches. I say this a lot to to whether it's woke or Marxism or really modern and postmodern um, hermeticism, which is that there is the grifter model, which is what Marxism and CRT use. And then there is the deconstructive model, which is what queer theory and all of these subsidiaries like fat and ability studies and so on use. Hmm. There's the one, so Marxists and critical race theorists are grifters. They want to seize the means of production. They want to confuse what's going on so that they can take over the means of production. Queer theorists are deconstructionists. They want to obliterate anybody being able to hold the means of production so that they can reign as navigators of the confusion. These are completely different things. And the way that you can actually see that most clearly is by looking at um, critical race theory specifically. Critical race theory could be constituted as it is, that race is socially imposed and reified by uh, the people of social dominance. And as such, um, we have to deal with the fact that racial identity is therefore concrete or made concrete, it's actual and inescapable. So you can't change your race. You cannot possibly become post-racial. That would be against the rules. But there's a reason for that is that you can't seize the means of racial production. In other words, affirmative action, reparations, and so on. You can't seize the means of a material grift based on race or a political grift based on race unless that has intrinsic immutable meaning. In the real world. However, you could say that the real basis of CRT is or should be that um, the black is the intrinsic abnormal other to white, and therefore you could develop a queer theory of race. But the point then would be to deconstruct racial boundaries, and transracialism would be the thing that proliferates to completely obliterate any concept of racial boundaries, not just you know mixing races through you know interracial marriages or whatever that even means after a little while, but also and literally deciding I'm transracial. There was an article recently that I read that I wanted to do a podcast about, but I haven't ever got around to it. And I don't even know if I still have it. Uh, but it was talking about this problem of, of young people, especially in Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, trying to, but it's common in America too, trying to like wish themselves to wake up Japanese so that they can be their favorite anime characters. And there's this strong desire for, for, kind of dispossessed white people to start transracializing themselves into Asian cartoon characters, which I think the first big take home is anime is probably bad for kids. Maybe it's okay for adults, but you probably should keep it away from children. Um, but secondly, uh, the article was absolutely one of the most confusing things that I've ever read. If you don't know what you're reading, because what it is, is it's a conflict between a queer theory of race and a uh, materialist or more traditionally Marxist theory of race. It's a modern versus postmodern 
uh, theory yeah. of race in conflict is what it is. So these people are pushing for a deconstructive notion of race. And literally the argument given is that's not okay because the CRT people still have the, the social dominance here. And they're saying that's not okay. You can't change race because race is not real and is imposed. It's immutable. And it, it, it literally to an to somebody who doesn't know what they're looking at, that what you're seeing is a conflict between a modern, a modern seize the means of production theory and a deconstructive destroy the means of production theory of the same concept. It's incomprehensible what it is. I remember actually seeing Seth Dillon from the Babylon Bee. That's who shared the thing in the first place that brought it to my attention, just being utterly mystified by this, just saying, you know, I cannot believe, you know, basically he's saying the satires outstripped his capacity because here it is. They're saying, Race is not real, and because it's not real, it can't be changed, which is the exact opposite of anything that makes sense. But what actually makes it make sense is that the two are constituted completely differently. CRT is kind of this hangover from the modern era of seizing the means of production, whereas queer theory is this postmodern destroy the means of production approach. And, and Crenshaw in um, Mapping the Margins is very very clear at the end of mapping the margins that this shall not be there will be no postmodernism used this way okay in crt we're race is imposed you're not taking it away from us this is our grift the imposition of race is the basis for, for our claims about affirmative action if race is not being unjustly imposed we have no basis for a material grift that we're trying to run so crt ultimately is a grifter theory and a queer theory of race, especially as more postmodernism gets embraced, will actually eventually consume it, which is going to be kind of exciting. And these kids trying to turn themselves Japanese or Korean so that they can become, you know, their favorite anime or K-pop star through wishful thinking. And they report these funny things like, yeah, I think my eyelids changed shape. <laughs> my skin came out slightly different color hmm. because I drank some potion and went to sleep. They're listening to like subliminal messages in their sleep of like waking up Japanese in the morning. And they think that it's changing like the shape of their there, eyes. There's literally stuff. a song about this. Yeah. I think it's I also making, I, think I'm yeah, totally oh, I want, I want to hit on something here, but James is also pointing at here. He hasn't, I think he's made it explicit, but let's make it even more explicit is that there's a territorial fight going on here between the people who are, are holding on to the critical theorists and the people who are holding on to postmodernism. And is mm -hmm. this, can we map this onto the gender critical versus trans stuff? Like the feminists well, are more the materialist stuff. Sex has to exist in order for us to, I think uh, that yes. would fit. And then yes, the queer theories kind to, of thing, it doesn't exist. We need to pop out two tools first. And so the first one is the distinction is that um, James is right. There has been a lot of attempts to blend postmodernism. Did you mute yourself again, you vocal? He's got to yell at somebody. Yeah. Somebody help vocal with technology. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> um, Angela Harris said that they wanted to constantly rebuild in the light of postmodernism, right? They wanted to use postmodernism as the thing which dissolves everything else, but they wanted to rebuild using their critical theories. Mm -hmm. Of course, the postmodernists are going to say, well, why should we rebuild according to you? Why shouldn't we rebuild according to postmodernism? And there have been various attempts over the years to try and blur that. You muted yourself again, local. He's Maybe you're farting. Somebody. And oh, so what happened... Yeah. And so what's happening there is there's a territorial dispute that is going on about which one is going to reign supreme. There have been a lot 
of attempts to blend postmodernism with critical theory. Mark Lila pointed out in the New York Review books, he said, "What? how do you get Derrida, Foucault, Baudrillard, Deleuze, and the other postmoderns mixed with like Adorno and Morcusa? And the answer turns out to be that using these theorists helpens to help advance this sort of emancipatory left-wing politics. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. the thing that holds it all together. We were talking about- I've said for a very long time that the radical left the woke left is not like a, a well-constructed machine that's been engineered. It's more like, well, we'll add some Derda, add a little Foucault, mix in some Adorno. Uh, a big it's like a virus that went through gain of function at a weird yeah, yeah. lab in China. Well, well, yeah. Well, you mix those all together at Harvard. You get a stew. These theorists are not like engineers carefully assembling. They're like cooks in a kitchen mixing stuff together. They're the alchemist. most that's well, well. Yes, and that's why I, I dropped earlier in the conversation. Well, they talk about alchemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we were we did that. But the the point is the most successful attempt, I think, unfortunately, to mix these things together in a seamless way comes from Henry Giroux. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. It, and he did it and he did it in education. In education. And that's why that's the mixing pot for these two things. Yeah, that's where critical now, constructivist epistemology comes from. Who came from Joe Kinchelow, right. which was a student of Giroux and and Freire. And inside of education, you can actually have praxis because education is a social, it's purely a social context. So you can be invested in this uh, removed from reality kind of laboratory that's all mind, and get people to write more books about the mind. It's like a perfect place for this stuff to to actually right. operate in in praxis. Now, the deconstructionists, short of some kind of force, are going to win this fight overall in the long run because their argument is the only thing preventing you from seeing it this way, that say race is something that can transform or that sex is real but gender is not with the gender critical feminism, is your political preference. You are just asserting your desire to draw a line and maintain power that advantages you. And so they actually have the more dialectical position, which means they will eventually win. And Mm -hmm. um, so long as the dialectic is allowed to proceed, uh, the acid of the dialectic will dissolve and consume these um, kind of more Gnostic dispositions that know we have the truth, we know where the lines are drawn and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, and so this is an extremely fascinating. This is, but you are right, Benjamin. This is the war between the gender critical feminists who are going to yeah. be framed that way, and the uh, trans or queer theorists who are, you know, literally trying to say that no, you're just trying to preserve sex for your own material yeah. benefit uh, and social benefit. And there's a thing that's going on here where. Mary Harrington, some of these other people were saying, look, this all woke all came from feminism and the gender critical theorists are like, no, it didn't come from feminism. We were always, well, what happened is the second wave feminists picked up critical theory. Critical theory, by the time you get to Gramsci, already has adopted, and that's why I read Drew and Frieri, Drew quoting or explaining Frieri and why I read Gramsci, those guys have already said, hey, look, the stronger dialectical position is to say that everything is socially or historically constructed. 
but right. it's all imposed on the world. That's the stronger dialectic position. See, what Marx did is Marx took Hegel and flipped him upside down. Because Marx thought, look, if we flip Hegel upside down, we do a materialist dialectic. We focus on resources, land, the economy, the oppressor oppressed in terms of class and the worker relationship and who owns the factories. That makes the position stronger, right? And mm-hmm. he did that because then he thought he could get a political program out of it, which is why everyone fo- focuses on Marx's political program and understands Marx as a materialist philosopher, which he was, and they understand him through his political program as being focused but if you if you if you get back from this political program and look at his overarching philosophy it's still utterly and completely dialectical Mm -hmm. and he's doing what marx is doing is saying his absolute historicism which gets put on steroids by gramsci and then gets uh transmuted i guess you could say into culture and social construction is is that does that gets you your anti-essentialism it's already right there there is no inherent objective stable long immutable things the everything can be absolutely rearranged and is infinitely fluid in all directions and it is therefore our job to construct the world and reality the way that we want it that's what he's opening the door to because there's right. infinite infinite configurations of everything right mm-hmm. well when you pull that the neo-marxists drop that materialism out so they flip him back and they move to culture or you might say they don't flip him back because hegel was an an absolute idealist or not maybe an absolute idealist but he was engaged in idealism mark says no materialism and he it's it's more like they kind of flip marx inside out and say no 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 yeah it's it's a trinity it's like the recycle symbol so you yeah, you flip it over, then you course. turn it inside out, yeah. and then you flip it over again, then you turn it inside out, and you flip it over again. Yeah, yeah. So he they flip Marx inside out because Marx was like base and superstructure. There, and they're like, no, it's superstructure and base, right? Yeah. The base, the superstructure is the underlying thing. What you thought, was, hey Marx, what you thought was the base is actually the thing that's built on top of the culture, and we're going to focus on the culture. You're 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 the doorway to postmodernism is right there. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to step forward. And all you got to do is bring in the social elements of every, that the, that the postmoderns bring in. And now you've got your attack on liberalism. You bring in your linguistic relativism, your conceptual relativism. You can bring in your, um, your Derridian philosophy of language in which there are no ontological anchors, which hold language to reality. You bring in your Foucaultian analysis, which says that everything is ultimately a mask for power and that the ontology of all of these social processes or of all of your language claims and of all of your truth claims is actually a social ontology. And therefore there's, they're completely subjective and not objective. You destroy the objectivity. There's an epistemological ontological fallacy there, but we won't get into that now, or maybe we'll get into it in a bit. And you do all of that work and you bring all of that in. And what you're able to do in that situation then is obliterate what's left of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Okay. The problem is that that acid is so strong it dissolves everything. And what happens is that the people who were just doing critical theory were saying everything is historically constructed. And so at least then, when you're saying everything is historically constructed, you're at least saying, well, but we are in this historical moment. So we need to create the socialist man, but we're stuck with having to rearrange the material world to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. But 
this just follows the same spiraling process of this trinity because Marx actually kind of got that idea from Goethe and he quoted Goethe on the point that said that every, every, uh, all truth is relative because everything that exists deserves to perish. And so um, the grift of the CRT deserves to perish. It deserves to be dialectically consumed. And that's why the the this took place within education, this fusion of these things, is because Paulo mm-hmm. Freire recognized explicitly that the um, that the revolution has to be perpetual, that any revolution that stops anywhere becomes sclerotic and bureaucratic automatically. You have to set up a bureaucracy to protect sex from the dissolving acid of deconstruction. Uh, but everything that exists, like a coherent understanding of sex, deserves to perish, according to Goethe. But what you actually have is you see this spiral, and what it does every time it goes around is it incorporates a little bit of the stuff that it picked up on the last pass. It's, it is the recycle symbol, by the way, like literally. It's the best image you can have of the, the thing. It flips around, turns inside out, and goes around in a circle yeah. over and over and over again. But it's really a triangle with three points. And the top and the point- And snowball can, just accumulating more and more mass to itself. Yeah. So Hegel has the top point is in the ideal realm. So he's an idealist. And he actually got a lot of his ideas from- Rousseau, who was a social theorist. So the social or cultural gave way to the ideal, and the ideal gave way to Marx to the material, the material gave way again to the social and cultural with the neo-Marxists, which gave way again to the ideal with the postmodernists and woke, which tells you that the next turn should be materialist, but we see where it's going, which is into this sustainability, degrowth, circular economy program. Hmm. And you can guess where it would go next is back into a cultural program, which is obviously going to be global consciousness because they're already laying the groundwork for a unified global Uh, cultural consciousness through the global citizen initiative and so on. And you can guess where it's going to go from there is back into the ideal, but that's where they think that the singularity is going to happen. AI is going to step in and create the perfect ideal system that's perfectly understood beyond any comprehension of humans by uniting all humans within the AI and through the so-called internet of bodies or internet of minds that they want to build out by, say, 2050. So you can kind of see their whole program, but it's the same dialectical spiral. Mm-hmm. You can go back to Rousseau, and you can go through Hegel, you can go to Marx, you can go to the critical theorists, you can go to the postmodernists and woke, and then you can end up looking at the, the Klaus Schwab sustainability model and then move into the global citizenship model, and into which is the UN, and then into this Yuval Noah Harari kind of nightmare scenario of uh, humans are hackable animals. Uh, humans are actually irrelevant. We build in Noah's Ark and let out in useless eaters flood, you know, or whatever the hell his psychotic visions are. But this is the the nature. And the problem is, is that this dialectical process, so long as it is allowed to go, continues to consume. And because what it does is it mixes some is not into what is. In other words, it mixes a lie into the truth. It blurs boundaries. It destroys conceptual understanding is that it is a inherently destructive process. Goethe had it right. All truth is relative when you believe that everything that exists deserves to perish, Yeah, which there's, pl- there's praise upon the, the Christian idea and particularly kind of the Calvin Calvinist version of Christian idea, which is that everything is inherently, you know, rotten and sinful in particular humans are. And so that we deserve absolutely nothing so that the mercy and grace of God is this incomprehensible miracle uh, Hmm. because we are a wholly fallen 
being or set of beings, uh, it latches on. The, you talk about these receptors. You can see that receptor where Garrett is like, well, everything deserves to perish. And you can hear a whole lot of kind of at that point, you know, mystical Lutherans in 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 Germany, in southern Germany thinking, yeah, it does. Everything really is rotten and it does deserve to perish. And the only thing that's really true and deserves to, to be exalted is the kingdom of God. And so yeah, well, all truth in world in the world, all worldly truth does deserve to perish, and it is all relative. And so the whole spiral of destruction, let's systematize that, says Hegel and Kant, and turn it into a program to build all aspects of philosophy. Hegel didn't stop with the phenomenology of spirit. That's just kind of an introduction or an initiation into his philosophy. He writes the philosophy of right which is like right and wrong. It's recta or whatever in German. And what it's recta, I guess, is how you pronounce it. I don't know how to say German things. Everybody knows that. Recta. The, recta. Yeah, like get, get wrecked. wrecked. It's get wrecked is what it, philosophy of get wrecked is what it is. And But he outlines this concept of the ideal, you know, constitutional monarchy society and what defines right and wrong. And it's really like at the beginning, the preamble, he's actually talking about how philosophy and its ideal, which he equates not necessarily there, but in other places with religion, the highest form of religion. Philosophy itself should be completely unbounded and it shouldn't have the state stepping in to interfere with it. And, you know, in other words, free thought and free speech and free writing. But the problem is people do it wrong. And so we do have to have the state kind of step in and make sure it goes in the right direction. I mean, that's right at the preamble to the the philosophy of right, if you read it. And you know, I kind of stared at that and was like, holy crap, hmm. uh, the statist you know, intervention is just overwhelming uh, in Hegel from the get-go. Then he outlines, yeah. but he outlines a theory of of right and wrong in a sense, and political right. He outlines a theory of or of correctness. He outlines a theory of logic. He outlines a theory. So he's got politics. He's got virtue. He's got everything wrapped up in his goofy program, which is frankly just this weird blending of hermeticism into Christianity under a Christian mold, uh, kind of undeniably. And what, what you have then is this blending of lie with truth. In other words, what you have is a destructive process masquerading as a creative process, or what you have is Satan gar dressed as the garb of an angel of light. Um, yeah. But one thing so, that, that is... Uh, can we go back and pick up a tool? Knife. I need to be... I need to... We need to wrap up in about 10 minutes. I have a... Bunch of moms against gender affirming care to speak with. This is kind of the question I have to leave you with. But how do we disentangle hyperliberalism from liberalism? Because you know we got women's rights, we got civil rights, we got we got all these rights, and then the woke come along and say, well, we don't have rights enough. So they claim the advances of liberalism and then push it even further. And it sounds like part of the project is to disentangle liberalism from hyperliberalism. Say liberalism, a, a certain amount of liberation, not from reality, but from certain sorts of bonds, certain sorts of arbitrary, um, you know, uh, un, un, uh, unelected um, obedience to certain things that it, it should be arbitrary. That was good and that enabled freedom, but ultimate or ultra freedom, ultra liberalism that, that uh, you know, it latches on to that same process. Of liberation turns you know gay rights into queer queer theory into you know anything goes under the sun into bestiality pedophilia there are no lines right so we want to preserve certain rights but not you know not not just emancipate ourselves from reality right i mean it looks a lot well, you, honestly 
Benjamin, like the non-aggression principle that the libertarians talk about. It looks similar to that. I don't know what the specifics might be, but the idea that you don't get to demand conformity from other people in order to claim your rights uh, turns out to be a kind of a big thing. Nobody is depriving you of your rights to do what you will with your body by telling you that you can't do it in public in front of other people to where you're now infringing upon their rights. So the 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 answer in liberalism, just kind of to circle back where we talked earlier, where it's fundamentally different, is that if we're truly nobody's God versus everybody being God, uh, if nobody's God, then first of all, there's no call to us all being unified under one view. If we're all God, we all have to have the exact same perspective on everything. If none of us is God, that's not that doesn't follow. But secondly, is that you have no authority outside of being God to dictate onto somebody else how they are going to live, believe, act, and whatever. So you don't, you have, there is completely justifiable limitation on what you can do to other people. In other words, because you don't have the authority to force them to think or believe or agree with you in any regard whatsoever. Your disagreement isn't merely you refusing to get on board with the one universal program that certain people think that they've figured out. It's in fact that nobody knows what the program is. So you have to take a minimalist approach, not a maximalist approach in terms of what you're allowed to do. So, yeah, if you want to fly your freak flag, that's fine. And you should do so in private. Um, in public, you are exposing a particular children to something that uh, violates you know, the the right that they have to their property or the, their parents have to them as children in terms of being whether you want to consider children as property or their parents or not. What you do have to realize is that they have a uh, absolute legal right to the upbringing of their children and probably a natural right to direct that upbringing uh, from which it extends. And so you the, the line that disentangles hyperliberalism from liberalism actually is the line that says that you don't get to impose your view on other people in that regard. You don't get to um, you don't get to to claim authority over another person and you don't get to sidestep that by claiming, well, we actually are all on the same program. You guys are just too deficient to recognize it. Mao's unity, criticism, unity. We'd have unity if everybody recognized that we're actually all on the same program. No, sorry, Mr. Zedong, we are not all on the same program. We most certainly are not on the same program. Uh, some of us are are doing different things. And what I think that that's where the line between hyper-liberalism is, if that's what you want to call it, and liberalism really is drawn. What it is is romanticism. The romantic believes that the world needs to be ordered around his fantasies and everybody has to accommodate those and that he has some kind of you know high-order Gnostic Inside. position from which yeah. he can order it uh, and demand it. And, which is just narcissism turned into a political project. And um, the liberal position says, basically, if I might be so coarse, no, no, fuck you. Uh, frankly, fuck you. Uh, we're not going to do that and you can't make us. And um, that's why it always turns tyrannical, because it doesn't have an answer to what do you do with people who say no. Liberalism does, which is live and let live. But we're also going to erect a clear distinction between the public and private spheres, which uh, needs to be maintained. You do what you will in private, so long as it doesn't harm or injure other people outside of the group of consenting adults that are participating in it. Um, and you do not do what you will in public. Uh, and certain things that you do in private might cause external harms, like you know, rampant drug use can cause basically deaths and other things. Somebody has to go pick up the bodies, so it can cause harms. And so we have to pay attention to that as well. So the, all of these things are actually justifiable under the the liberal ethos that nobody gets to have to to 
imbue themselves with the authority to basically crap on other people's parades in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, But it requires a firm boundary between public and private life. This is if we want to interpret John Adams that way, why he said the Constitution is for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. What is a moral people? Well, certainly at the very least, and there's probably a lot more to it than this, but at the very least, it's people who know how to regulate themselves in public. Yeah. Uh, I think it would also, if you are dysregulated in private, that will probably bleed over into public as well. So there is a call to being regulated in private as well. But um, I think there's, I don't think that this is as complicated or confusing or arbitrary as it sounds. Uh, We have to nail down what people actually do and don't have a right to. Mm -hmm. Um, And narcissistic enablement is not something anybody has a right to, as a matter of fact, because it demands that you, that other people become the supply, which is, which abrogates their, their fundamental rights. Mm -hmm. I would like to add something that I think that there's a, a another thing that needs to be said here, and that is, um, uh, how do I put this? Really, really quickly. The other thing that I think de- demarcates um, a line between uh, liberalism and the so-called hyperliberalism, or the postmodernism, or the wokeness, is the is that wokeness sees the political ideology coming first and truth as being a thing that's built on that in liberalism, the roles are reversed. Truth comes first. In other words, that's right. Reality is not something that you can describe your way out of to take a page out of Dr. Campbell's book, who was taking a page from, from Donald Davidson, um, that the test of a true metaphysics is that you can't describe your way out of it. And what, what, Postmodernism seeks to do with its blurring of boundaries and languages is give itself the tools to describe its way out of a true metaphysics and to describe its way out of reality. That's what it wants to do. Because ultimately what it wants, Ben, and you touched on it in your question, is it wants liberation from reality. That's right. And Searle writes, he said, one of the problems in, and he writes this in Mind, Language, and Society, why, why are they doing this? And he says, I think they just think that it's they're insulted. It's just so unfair. It's just so vulgar that reality should be able to impose itself on us in this way. And so they're looking for ways to describe themselves out of reality so that that they can, they can, they pointed out that we were not gods. You're limited. You only have your perspective. And then tried to create for themselves a theory of language in the world, which would allow them to become gods, the creators of everything via language and power, the reordering of all that exists they want to be freed from reality. And I think that this ties into the gender critical thing versus um, the gender crits have made a mistake. And the mistake they've made is that why are they defending the sex gender distinction and why are they defending themselves from trans? It's not because of truth. It's because of politics. They're still built on the foundation where politics comes before truth. The personal is political. The problem. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the problem with a lot of the turfs is that is that they, they have drank the Kool-Aid of critical theory and have allowed themselves to be put in a situation where they're looking at the political effects of what the trans people are doing, what the deconstructionists are doing. And they're not looking at the truth question. 
we make truth primary. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And here I'm going to do something that James is just going to love. Truth becomes primary. And what is the paradigmatic definition of truth? It comes from Aristotle to say of what it is that it is and what it is not that it is not. All of the philosophers that I have been quoting, Searle, Davidson, they all at important turns in their philosophy go back to Aristotle. Davidson does it twice, once in his theory of truth, turning back and saying truth is a simple concept, as Aristotle says, and then second in his theory of action, where he wants goes back to the old Aristotelian notion that actions are causes, or that reasons are causes. Searle does the same thing. Searle goes back to Aristotle when he wants to talk about truth and says to say what it is that it is, and say what it is not that it is not. The fundamental point is this. You talked about Plato. You said Plato was doing a sort of dialectic thing. I think Plato was playing with the dialectic a little bit, but he wasn't doing what Hegel was doing or what Marx was doing. Plato is doing something different. Aristotle, Plato is showing us what the di- where the dialectic gets us. Aristotle is the one who shows us the way out, which is why it is correct to say when it comes to Western civilization, well, are we defined by ethnicity? Are we defined by blah, blah, blah? No. Aristotle was the first of us. Aristotle so, is the one. Of what is that it that, is and of what is not that it right. is not. Because Aristotle is the first one to get down to truth and make truth primary in the way that he understands it. He's the first one to do that philosophically in the West. And so whenever you see a renewal in philosophy or philosophy that's on the right page, it tends to lean heavily toward Aristotle. That's what it tends to do. And so the reason I quote Davidson, quoting Aristotle, and I like to have Searle, quoting Aristotle, (laughs) is because those guys are leaning into that tradition in a way that's really great. Now Davidson ends up in a bad in some bad places. He no 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 doubt about that. But he's fundamentally oriented in the right way because he's taking on and taking seriously what Aristotle is doing and the renewal of of the western civilization that we cherish is the renewal and the nourishments of those Aristotelian roots. And for us to say of what it is that it is, and what is not, that it is not. I got to go. Thank you so much for your time. Please disturb fascism and progress. <laughs> James Lindsay's... Yeah, that's, uh... that's, I, I stole this from they, they assaulted us. So this is good. You can use this for... Is that want. from Moms speak. for Liberty? Yeah. It's, did you know there's fascism taking place in this hotel? They hung these <laughs> on the doors in the hotel. Please disturb fascism and progress. Um, so uh, I kept one. And so I thought it would be a good fitting ending that we've been having fascism in progress this whole time. Well, Caesar. I'll check you guys later. I got to pee and then talk to some women about gender. Sounds fun. No, it's great. It's great. Thanks so much for your time. Both of you guys. It's great yep. to catch up with you. Yeah. Thanks good to see you. Me. It was wonderful to be here. <laughs>